We're all on a journey to reach our full potential and purpose. And no matter where you are on your path, know that we walk together and not alone. At the Mission Leadership Institute, we believe the path to leadership is self-discovery. To support you, we're bringing the most advanced thinkers in the country to help unpack all that we carry with us on this journey in leadership. Before we start, we want our listeners to know that the information provided during this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Providence Walk With Me podcast. I'm your host, Martin Schreiber, with the Providence Mission Leadership Institute. Today, we welcome back a very special guest, Elizabeth Lesser. In part two of our conversation, we're unpacking words of wisdom from her books, Breaking Open and Cassandra Speaks. When women are the storytellers, the human story changes. Okay, let's get started by welcoming back Elizabeth. I want to welcome back Elizabeth Lesser, someone who for countless years has helped the world grow in consciousness of these inner callings inside of us. Uh, from uh, co-founding the Omega Institute, which now has uh, 30,000 people participating in it, to New York Times books. Uh, Elizabeth, it's so good to be back with you again to continue our conversation. Thank you. One of the uh, lines from your newest book, Cassandra Speaks, and I love the title, is about when women are the storytellers, the human story changes. You write this. There is always a way to reveal one shining self without diminishing the light of another. There is a way to do power differently than the way we have come to define it. You go on to say the point isn't just about women finally getting power. It's about doing power differently. Can you help us unpack that? You spoke so uh, eloquently in our last segment. This notion of reflection around power seems mm. to be in our consciousness, especially within healthcare, where we need to reverence nurses, not just these other components of the healthcare field. Mm, yeah. You know, um, my, the book I wrote before Cassandra is called Marrow, a love story. And it's I was my sister's bone marrow donor. Um, a shout out to uh, getting yourself on the bone marrow donor list. It's so it's such an easy thing for the donor to do. It's not an easy thing for the recipient. But in any event, um, my sister was a nurse practitioner, mm -hmm. and she was someone I watched navigate the crazy healthcare system and how hard it is, especially for nurses. And she lived a year after the bone marrow transplant. Marrow is the story of, of our journey together as we kind of became almost the same person when my blood marrow went into her body. But um, when I was cleaning out her office after she died, I came upon this needlepoint she had made. She was also a craftsperson. And, and I don't know if I can say a four-letter word on your... Sure. Okay. It, it, it was a saying that she said she and her nurse friends always said to each other, do no harm, but take no shit. Mm -hmm. And this was her mantra, that there is a way 
to honor our Hippocratic oath to do no harm, whether you're a nurse or just a person in the world who wants to do as little harm as we can, and to take no shit. Because if all we do is do no harm and we activate that female sensitive self, and men have it too, and don't have a strong backbone and don't have that sense of self-protection and um, strength to do what we need to do, the, the take no shit. If all we do is the do no harm, we get run over. So to me, the spiritual path as it pertains to power is to try to learn how to be the kind of leader who can do no harm, who's always asking the question, what is the path to take now? that will heal the most, that will help the most, that will do the least harm, but at the same time to have boundaries, to know your mind, to speak your truth, to know that a leader isn't always liked, and to, to take no shit, but at the same time to do no harm. It's such, it's so different, difficult to do power differently. It's so difficult to be a new kind of leader, a servant leader, um, but it's a worthy goal. And we see what happens when we don't try to balance those two urges to lead and to listen, to be strong and to be open and soft. When we don't try to live in the holy middle of those two urges, you know, power is so easily abused. Mm-hmm. And so to do power differently to me is to to use the metaphor of what I said in the first part of the show, this idea of, yes, human beings have a fight or flight instinct, but we also have a tend and befriend instinct. And if we can live in always almost a state of prayer, show me what is the wisest response right now. Do you need me to go in there, Joan of Arc, paving the way? Or do you need me to be listening deeply now and holding everyone's opinion in my hands and and reflecting and caring? Show me what what needs to be done now. It really feels like what you're saying is to be aware of our emotions and to understand the discernment it takes to be a leader Mm -hmm. and to know who your audience is, to know uh, the spirit you're bringing into the room. I know you've done a ton of work with Oprah and she always talks about claim your spirit that you walk into the room with. Absolutely. Um, and, and this whole notion of inner work has been a hallmark of your career and founding of Omega and these ways of writing. And I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about that because that's a self-discovery I feel I've been on uh, even more since I left uh, a fundamental formative kind of religious notion and then had to step out into the real world and Mm -hmm. had to find what was going to get me to be able to survive. Yeah. You know, and and you talk about this in Cassandra Speaks in terms of this inner vism. I think I pronounced Mm -hmm. that. I tried. Mm -hmm. Um, But this way of you being a teacher of meditation also struck me and broken open when Ram Das had so much to say to you. And that wonderful line of be here now. I was Mm -hmm. just on phone calls as we conclude our leadership program uh, and just said, let's be here now. 
but that's so hard to do. <laughs> it's so hard to do. It is so hard to do. Um, I made up the word innervism. That's why okay. you can't um, pronounce it because it's not really a word. But I've been around so many activists, activism. You know, as I said earlier on, I was raised by activist parents. And then when uh, I was in college, I was very involved in the civil rights and the feminist movements and the anti-war movements. And I was always struck by how so many activists, let's say peace activists, are really angry. Or feminists who talk about equality. Well, what about men? And, you know, like there's such... It, 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 I'm not. I'm not judging activists. God bless them. We need them now more than ever. But if we don't pay attention also to ourselves and to our own tendencies to be angry, to be exclusive, you know, and we can't see in the other. Ah, I've been like that. I am like that sometimes. Our work in in the social justice world becomes can become actually uh, the opposite of what we hoped it would be. So I came up with this word innervism because I wanted to give a sense of um, clout and agency to inner work, like meditation, let's say, or prayer, or psychotherapy. The kind of work where we turn the lens on ourselves and ask, how do I change? How do I make sure I'm walking the talk and not just talking it? How do I be the change? Um, when if if we don't do that, we either burn out or we run the risk of of becoming the very monster we're trying to fight. In Nietzsche's words, so innervism, all it is is a kind of tricky way of saying take your inner work seriously and marry it to your, the work you do in the world. So let's say you're in a meeting, things are getting heated, people are disagreeing with each other. You find yourself being drawn into wanting to lash out and be angry. You can actually bring your inner work just for a second, that be here now, mm-hmm. take a minute. And if you're really brave, if you really wanna be a hero, say to the whole group, hey, everybody, This isn't going to serve our cause. We're all in the same organization here. We want the same thing. Can we take a minute now? Personally, I just want to take a few breaths. Will you join me? Some people will be like rolling their eyes and like, let's get on it. I have another, I have a phone call. I got to get blah, blah, blah. But to give inner work the respect and the muscles that it needs, I think is, is, is a worthy thing to try to get brave enough to do. That's why I call it innervism. There can be a joy to that innervism too, right? It doesn't have to be always we chi out and we go to a cave because I know as a parent who has four kids under seven, that ain't happening. Oh, God bless you. (laughs) Well, bless my wife. There's a level of just how can we be present and then also recognize we're, we're a mess at times but we have intentionality that can bring goodness and we're working towards that. And who better to put as a model than the nurses, 
the physicians mm-hmm. who are taking call in the middle of the night, who are coming in and missing a practice or a recital and this sense of generosity. And I really appreciated what you taught me in terms of Broken Open, because it was one of the first books we read together in building the Mission Leadership Institute. And someone really drew out the quote in an interview that we started with because it spoke to who we wanted to become. And you you say this from Anise Nin. Anais Nin, yeah. Anais. And, and she says, and the time came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. How do Isn't I know? Isn't that amazing? I mean, you just pause with that quote. And how do I know when it's the moment when I'm ready to break open? And how do you continue to break open and not get burnt out? It, it, yeah. Um, if anybody has the answer, call in now. <laughs> <laughs> Press one. <laughs> Press one if you have the answer. Yeah, the answer. Um, it's it's a it's the hackneyed word. It's a journey. Um, you know, I, there's another quote I love that might set us on the path to finding an answer together mm-hmm. right now. Um, Howard Thurman, who was a theologian and Dr. King's real teacher, Howard Thurman. He, he's a thinker and a writer. Everyone should read. I don't know why he mm-hmm. isn't better known. Anyway, he has this beautiful quote. He says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs are people who have come alive. So when I had my first major big broken open experience when I got divorced, um, all I can say was that for quite a few years, I felt dead. I was not coming alive. And I was trying everything I could to be alive. And by alive, I just mean grateful to be breathing in awe of my gratitude for being human, just feeling the energy in my body and my health was going downhill. I had two little kids. There came a time when that quote from Anais Nin, it was going to be riskier to stay dead than it was to break open. And I did so much to, both of us did, my ex-husband and I, we both did so much to save the marriage. And I never thought I would be the kind of person who ever got divorced and had a broken family. It was, it was unbearable to me. My family was upset, my parents. But at some point I realized if I was going to uh, be alive and be a servant of the living force in the world, I, I had to make a change. Now, most people are in better marriages and don't have to make that change. Some people will say, oh, my first broken open experience was when I got cancer. I was dying. And then I was given a lease on life, a second life. And the gratitude in my heart, now I say, I'm actually grateful I had cancer. I wouldn't want anyone else to have to have it. 
but I came alive. I became aware of what it means to truly be alive. Some people have to quit a job. Some people have to take a job. It's different for everyone. But all I would say is when the life force in you is no longer serving yourself or anyone and you feel bitter and broken down instead of broken open, it's really time to ask yourself whether it's through a religious counselor or a psychotherapist or just a friend, it's time to really look within and ask yourself for this precious life that was given to me to live with uh, a burning flame, I believe. I don't think we're just supposed to live here to crawl through the day. I think it's a miracle just to be alive. And I want to feel like that. I don't want to be a hedonist who's always going out and looking for, you know, a flame. But I want my outer life to match what I know this, the, the, the Holy Spirit had in mind for me. That's so beautiful to think of that light burning. And you're even talking about at the beginning of Broken that Phoenix rising. And this, this way that we could generate for our world a sense of aliveness. Who doesn't want to get out of bed for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it's so hard for some and me and you to, totally. to be leaders who inspire those to say it is possible, right? It is possible. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that had a lot to do with why you built the Omega Institute as, as yeah. a place that something was just missing. It, it felt like to me as I've, I've just come into this in a few years with you and mm. thinking about what are we missing? I've spent a lot of my life in retreat houses and silent retreats and these methods of meditation that we've talked about together, but there must've been something that you just said, let's start mm. this and mm. let's ignite a flame and let's have people be alive. Yeah. Well, at the time I was just 22. So I, I, people will often come to Omega and say, how did you know how to start this at 22? Well, at 22, it was just an idea. And we slowly built it into this large campus. Then, you know, 25,000 people come through every year and millions come to the website. That is not how we started. We started with exactly what you said, this sense of like, at that time, my ex-husband and I started it together and he's a medical doctor and what he felt was missing his calling was really in the health profession that like we've gotten so seduced in western medicine into thinking take this pill this pill this pill that nobody's thinking about how could I maybe prevent what's going on so I don't have to take this pill this pill this surgery this and this so he was called to create um, workshops and trainings for medical people in holistic medicine. My calling was more in the spiritual disciplines and for having watched in our culture how we had stripped religion from daily life. And I understood why. I understood the separation of church and state and that we were a, a multi-spiritual nation. And I love that. And I value that. And I love America for that. But in doing so, 
there was no real guiding morality and um, spiritual education and people seemed lost. And, and this was 42 years ago and mm-hmm. people seem very lost now. And so this idea of creating a place where people from all different spiritual or no spiritual traditions could come and figure out ways to calm their minds and open their hearts and attune their lives to something of purpose and meaning um, and to figure out how to make their life be their own hero's journey, the strength to do that and to lead and to do power differently. That's what I was interested in. And that's what we've been doing for the past 40 some odd years. And I encourage everyone to walk in that door. Uh, I have people (laughs) here who are signing up for sessions and then even just receiving the notes and and saying, well, how is it that I could not miss the moment? And that was really my final question. The, The bonus one has to do with sisters and your talk that you gave at TED and talk, and you've mentioned that with the book about your sister. I, I have two sisters. I'm actually uh, cognizant of a busy life that makes you think you don't have time, right, mm. for family. And that's, mm. a, that's a real poverty, I think, mm-hmm. of early career people is that they can tend to just rush to do everything but not take care of the ones in front of them. So yeah. we're going to go to Willie Nelson's 90th concert coming up here. And uh, we'll, oh, we'll you're lucky. <laughs> I just got that come through. But it made me think of you saying to us, don't miss the moments and, and, and be here now as we've talked about too. But as we part together, and I, I know this won't be the last time, how am I someone who in the race of being in a career of trying to give everybody everything that they want, can I develop inside myself a sense of there are things that in front of me, I don't want to let go of. Mm -hmm. And that's family. It's my kids. It's my beautiful wife. How do you help people to say, this is the value. This Mm -hmm. is what you could hold tenderly rather than fight and flight to the next meeting. Well, first of all, we have to forgive ourselves and not say it's my, it's your fault. You're rushing so much and you weren't, and you missed your kid's piano recital. And it's like, this is the system we're in. And to lay guilt and blame on ourselves on top of the grief of missing it, it just adds more stress. So to every day, forgive ourselves, even like wrap your arms around yourself and say, dude, you are doing such a good job. This is hard. And we're all struggling with this time poverty and racing. And then the pandemic just threw a wrench into everything. So these are difficult times. So let's like uh, forgive ourselves for not exactly knowing how to deal with it. Um, The other thing is, okay, if you can't change it today, you can show up fully with whomever you're with. So the next time you catch yourself kind of like you're in, you're talking with someone, but you're not really talking with that person. You're just waiting for them to stop because you got to get onto the same. You know what? Three extra minutes that it would take to have eye contact, to slow it down. You don't have to say to the person, I'm really trying to be here with you now. No, you just like, you can even do little little prompts, just put your hand on your heart and pat it and, and 
you can pretend you're scratching your heart. You know, it's like just to remind yourself, show up with this person. Be with this person right now. Same with your kids when you get home. It's it. You might think, well, that's exhausting if I'm with every person. No, it's actually life giving much less exhausting. You're not attaching to you all the guilty stuff that that feels like sticky yuckiness that we go through. And then I actually think it's a revolutionary act to try to bring some sanity into the places we live and to say, can we end work today a half an hour early? Can we have two less patients? Can we? I know it's difficult. I know it's a massive structure that needs to change at the highest levels. But to try to change the structure a little bit. Thank you. And I found myself and those who are listening, maybe they're putting their arms around themselves or maybe they're tapping their heart. And if we could give anything to anybody today, it would be that tenderness. And Elizabeth, you have been tender to us and I can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me, really. Good good luck, everybody. Thank you for what you do. I want to thank Elizabeth for joining us and to everyone for listening. Her inspiration guided so much of our building, the Mission Leadership Institute, and the ways that we come to understand that the human story changes when women are the storytellers. Having two sisters, I can't agree more. You can find the Mission Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. Be well.